Hi everyone, welcome to this podcast from Cambridge Health Tech Institute for the World Preclinical Congress, which runs from June 12th to the 16th in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm Mana Chandok, an associate producer. We have with us today Aidan Sinnott, an executive director at Charles River Laboratories. Charles River Laboratories will be giving a bridging presentation between the preclinical models and tools in oncology track and the tumor models for cancer immunotherapy track at the World Preclinical Congress. Dr. Sinnott, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What are some of the challenges in identifying new oncology therapies and bringing them to market? So there's a number of different challenges in this realm. They're broken out into several different buckets. Obviously, you have the scientific challenges, which are involved around finding novel targets, uh, new spaces to work in. That has been somewhat modified over the past few years due to the success of immuno-oncology, which has kind of broadened people's horizons a lot in terms of what they are able to aim for from an economic and a return on investment standpoint. So in the last five years now, we've seen a huge increase in the range of targets and modalities that people are looking to test. Another scientific challenge has been as well, people have become more aware of the immune system, whether or not they're looking to target it, they've become aware that the immune system can sometimes have unexpected effects on certain therapies and the treatments. And retrospectively, people are looking back at results that they've had in the past and realizing that the immune system may have influenced that somewhat as well. So another set of challenges is all along the whole process. So I mentioned earlier on the idea of the return on investment and inevitably whether it's a large drug maker that's producing a therapy or whether it's a small startup or virtual company. It's a 15-year lifespan to get a drug from concept into the clinic. It's a lot of money invested. And there's the inevitable value of death where a lot of therapies will end up dying. It's not always related to the fact that a therapy would not ultimately be useful. It's just to do with the fact that every company has to have a set of criteria which helps them rationalize the decision making in the next process. And sometimes an asset which is promising can fail for other reasons. Obviously, another part of the process is ensuring that you have the resources to see that through. So again, we've seen some promising early-stage therapies that have been developed by smaller companies, and due to the fact that those companies were not able to get adequate funding, they weren't able to progress along the development pipeline. Usually what happens to those companies is either get bought up or at least their assets do, but sometimes they can unfortunately be shelved. And the final big hurdle I would say is regulatory. So certainly in oncology, the rate of development in the biology, the science of the biology has been so rapid in the last few years that the regulatory authorities like the FDA and other organizations are struggling to keep up. They're not sure how to interpret some of the new data. One good example is checkpoint inhibitors. Initially, when BMS developed their CTLA-4 checkpoint inhibitor with Onopharma, they didn't need to test it in animal models. That's not something that necessarily applies to every immunotherapy. There's a lot of question marks around what the right models are to assess a therapy. And we would like to see that be down to more than just dumb luck as to which therapies make it through and where the regulators are pushing back. So there's a real need for a conversation between the drug makers and academia and the regulatory authorities in order to make sure that decision making around regulatory approval of these drugs is rational and leads to the best result. There's also a question mark around the models and in particular I would use as an example humanized mice which are a relatively new type of model that's been developed where you engraft 
an aspect of the human immune system onto an immunodeficient mouse and then you test the therapy in that mouse. Some people are looking to use this in efficacy, some people are looking to use it in safety studies and this again is just a question that people don't know how to deal with partly on the regulatory side but also on the scientific side in terms of interpreting the data and figuring out what are the right questions to be asking that the model will actually be able to answer. What are some of the newest technologies and therapies in cancer immunotherapy that you are most excited about and why? So the thing that jumps out to me right now it's still relatively a niche because there's a limited number of companies that are investing in this but cellular therapies such as chimeric antigen T-cells or CAR T-cells are starting to look promising. So there's been a lot in the headlines recently about companies like Juno or Kite who have had some very good successes in terms of efficacy and then you have an unexpected death in the clinic or some kind of immunological side effect off target effect. And some people have kind of said, well, that's the end of that. Cellular therapies won't go much further for two reasons. One is because the unexpected impact it can have on the immune system can lead to some very deadly side effects. And the other reason being that the most common type of CAR-Ts at the moment are personalized, so it does involve taking cells out of a patient, modifying them and putting them back in, which is logistically quite challenging to do and doesn't necessarily seem like it could be an option for every single patient. But I do believe that we'll overcome those technical challenges in the future. A much larger type of therapy that we're seeing now in terms of the size of the market and the number of therapies that people are setting in the pipeline are various combination agents that will seek to leverage the success of checkpoint inhibitors. So these are either drugs that will enhance the narrow range of checkpoint inhibitors in order to make sure that they apply to more than just a subset of patients or that will somehow enhance the immunogenicity of a tumor in order to allow the immunomodulators to do their work or else drugs that look to mitigate the toxic side effects of those drugs. And we've seen a lot of very promising therapies come through. uh, So that's very exciting. And finally, I I'd like to mention it's not quite mature yet, but the epigenetic approaches that were quite hot and people made a lot of noise about them a few years ago have definitely not gone away. There's a number of companies working on epigenetics, and it's my view that the science is still not mature enough. Epigenetics is so huge, and we don't yet know enough about it, but I do believe that's going to be very impactful over the next five to ten years as we learn more about it. Do you have any advice for drug companies looking to work with CROs? So I would encourage people to look beyond pricing and think about the value that's generated. I think that the prime characteristics that a drug maker should be looking for when they're vetting a CRO are based around the experience of their scientists, and that's in terms of how many times have that particular scientific group run given assays, their expertise, which comes down to the knowledge of the scientific personnel and how much they can contribute to the project beyond just the immediate study that's there, thinking about the context and the background of the therapy, the capabilities. So you may go and talk to CRO about one given study, but you never know what other studies you may need to run. So it makes sense to talk to CRO about what else they can do. And the more that they can do for you, the more likely it is that they'll be able to help you and that it becomes more of a long-term relationship. Capacity in terms of how quickly they can get studies run and how much they can handle at a given time. And of course, quality in terms of the error rate and the operational execution. Ultimately, if you have a partner who really understands what you're trying to do with your drug, who knows from experience what to look out for as kind of warning signs or other irregularities in the data that you may want to investigate more closely, it will save you money and more importantly, time in the long run because you just need to make the right choices at the right point. 
And then the other thing is if you work with a CRO where people have good amount of expertise, it brings a different perspective to a project. It becomes a collaboration, and that will benefit you even if you work for a large company. There's always a certain amount of culture that influences the way that people think, and I believe that having the widest range of perspectives will help you, guide you to make the right choices, challenge you, and enable that the drug or the therapies that you're exploring will be guided as best as possible. If you're going to fail, it's better to fail early. And if you're going to succeed, it's better that it's rigorously tested by somebody who doesn't necessarily share the mindset of you. Dr. Sinnott, thank you for your time and insights today. Thank you very much. That was Aidan Sinnott, an executive director at Charles Rivers Laboratories. Charles River Laboratories will be giving a bridging presentation between the preclinical models and tools in oncology track and the tumor models for cancer immunotherapy track at the upcoming World Preclinical Congress. That'll be held June 12th to 16th in Boston, Massachusetts. If you'd like to hear from him in person, go to www.worldpreclinicalcongress.com for registration information and enter the key code podcast. I'm Mana Chanduk. Thank you for listening.